For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with Jeff Notkin, recently elected president of the National Space Society, about America's past and future in space travel. Find out what some contemporary musicians in Mexico are saying about immigration. And join visitors who witnessed a rare desert spectacle on a hot summer night at Tejono Chul. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This summer, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing has been observed in many ways. For my guest, Jeff Notkin, this anniversary gave him the chance to interview one of his heroes, astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Notkin did the interview for the magazine Ad Astra, which is published by the National Space Society. It's an educational and scientific nonprofit for space advocacy, with chapters around the globe promoting the vision of a positive future for humans among the stars. Earlier this year, Jeff Notkin was elected as the president of the National Space Society. This organization has really helped keep the dream of spaceflight alive low these many decades. And many enthusiasts of my age who remember the Apollo landings thought by now we would have permanent bases on the moon and Mars and have achieved many other technological marvels. And we have achieved technological marvels, but just perhaps not in the areas that we expected. We're still an Earth-bound species. Our forays into space have been short and relatively few in number when you consider how frequently we use aircraft and ships and other modes of transportation. We have an international membership, many thousands of members around the world, largely older spaceflight devotees. And part of my mission in assuming the presidency of the NSS is to help engage the younger, brilliant generation of spaceflight enthusiasts. And really, for the first time in the history of the world, we have a generation that are going to be commercial spaceflight professionals. In the past, we had engineers building the rockets and computer scientists building the, the tech that would fly the ships, and we had the astronauts. But that was largely nation-fueled endeavors. So giant space programs, the NASA program, the Soviet program, these were enormous enterprises that were funded by and large by the government. They were national endeavors, no longer. You had a plum assignment in this 50th anniversary year of the landing on the moon. You got to talk to Buzz Aldrin. So the obvious question is, were you starstruck? I certainly was. I have met Buzz a number of times, and I have had the pleasure of introducing him on stage, and I have had dinner with him. So I've spent time with Buzz, and he is such an extraordinary person, not just in what he accomplished in 1969, 50 years ago, this month, but what he has continued to achieve. And what many people may not know is that not only was he one of the first humans to walk on the moon, but he was a highly experienced combat pilot. He's an engineer. He is, a, he is a brilliant scientist and innovator who has continued all of this time to be a champion of, of human spaceflight. 
So this is not an adventurer, a gentleman who, who's who's sat back in the deck chair and said, well, those were my glory days. No, he is still a, a vital and active force, and he actually sits on the Board of Governors of the National Space Society. Despite having spent a significant amount of time with him over the years, yes, I was absolutely starstruck to sit <laughs> down and, and interview someone who's a personal hero of mine. And when he walked in to the studio, I said, gosh, Buzz, you you, you look fantastic. And, and he goes, believe me, it, it's not easy to stay looking this good at my age. So that, that kind of humor and confidence. Slightly more than 50 years ago, there was quite a bit of activity on the campus of the University of Arizona, where we are today, because it was the birth of the Planetary Sciences Department and a group who were brought together, including a man named Dr. Spencer Titley, to help find the perfect landing spot on the moon. And I interviewed him a few years ago. It was an exciting time for me to visit his lab. And he told me about uh, how they flew some of the astronauts from the Apollo program uh, here. And they had a meeting, and they looked over their data together. And I said... That must have been an incredible amount of pressure to know that you were picking the landing spot. Their lives were in your hands. How nervous did that make you? I was extremely nervous, he said, until I met the astronauts. And their confidence in what they were doing, their forward-thinking perspective on the mission, put all of us at ease. They trusted us, and we instinctively trusted them. What a wonderful story. I, I love that about the confidence of the astronauts. And, and having had the pleasure of meeting many of the Apollo astronauts, most of them, in fact, they do have that confidence and a, and a gentle matter of factness when they reminisce and talk about their enormous achievements. So Tucson's involvement with the Apollo program and spaceflight in general, I could just talk about that all day. <laughs> and I wonder how many Tucsonans realize that the Lunar and Planetary Lab, which is here in, in the Kuiper Space Sciences Building, next to our lovely Flandra Planetarium on the campus, is one of the most important historical buildings in all of spaceflight. And it was founded in 1960 by the astronomer Jared Kuiper as a planetary science research department. And you would be hard-pressed to find a, an American spaceflight mission since then that has not had something or a lot to do with Lunar and Planetary Lab, or LPL, as mm -hmm. everyone here calls it. And that goes from, from Voyager and Pioneer in the early days up through Maven and Cassini and the amazing OSIRIS-REx mission, which is headquartered right here in Tucson, as I know you know, with Principal <laughs> Investigator Dante Loretta, who is a, a very charismatic and brilliant scientist who lives here in Tucson. So, so much of spaceflight has and had links to Lunar and Planetary Lab, but it was important to the Apollo program because of the lunar atlas that was that was made here and the great deal of research on potential landing surfaces on the moon. Did you ever meet Ewan Whitaker, the British astronomer? No, I did not. So he was a fellow Brit, super interesting gentleman. He passed away a couple of years ago, sadly. But I, I met him and spent uh, time with him on numerous occasions. He met Kuiper in 55 and later moved to Tucson with the mission of designing building, creating a lunar atlas. And not only did he make a photographic atlas of the moon, but he made an alternate one called the rectified lunar atlas, which showed what the moon would look like from the vantage points of the lunar module pilots 
as they attempted landings on the moon. So we would say POV today. So he did a POV lunar atlas. He once showed me a signed book that Alan Bean of Apollo 12 had given him that said, thank you for all your help. Something along the lines of, we would never have been able to land on the moon without you. <laughs> and and his story and the story of, of the Lunar and Planetary Lab in general is documented in a fantastic documentary film called Desert Moon, which I very highly recommend, directed by Jason Davis. And the, the subhead is from Arizona to the moon and the dawn of planetary science. So our little city of Tucson played and continues to play an extremely important role in the exploration and discovery in space. It's, it's, it's really something for Tucsonans and all Arizonans to be proud of. A key thing that Dr. Titley reminded me of was at the time there was such uncertainty. There was a school of thought that said that the moon would be covered with such a thick layer of dust that anything landing on it would just sink directly into it. We know now that with careful choice and good science, that's not a threat. But at the time, it could have been. Can you imagine what it must have been like? I've watched that footage so many times as Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz are about to land on the moon and they're, they're running out of fuel and they've only got a few seconds and they're so calm. And it's, it's beautifully recreated in the, in the first man feature film that, that came out recently, which is a marvelous film. Remember that, that there's a little rod at the bottom of the lunar module that touches the surface and then they go, oh, we're going to land any second. And those pads could have just gone down into the dust. We, we just didn't know. And so it was okay when it landed, of course. But even then, when you go back and you watch the footage of, of Neil Armstrong going down the ladder the first time and he kind of just, <laughs> just gingerly touches the surface with his foot, like, am I going to disappear into moon dust? And it was a viable theory because what do we see when we look at the surface of the moon? Millions of meteorite craters. So the surface has been pummeled for, for millions, billions of years by all of these meteorites impacting and, and volcanic activity as well. So yeah, the surface could have been anything. What might you, Jeff, say to a young person who comes up to you and he or she might say, this is ancient history to me. This is 50 years ago. This is so long ago. Why don't we go back? Why don't we go back? That is the question. Well, the answer to that question, finally, and after many years of wondering, is we are going back. We're going back to the moon. We're going to Mars as people for the first time. Of course, we've landed many robot probes on Mars, and it's as different as could be from the first time around. The first great age of space exploration, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and, and the Soviet programs, these were government-funded operations, which definitely had a, a component that included science and exploration, but also, as we know in retrospect, there was a political component as well. We wanted Agreed. we wanted to beat the Russians to the moon. We wanted to establish the United States presence in space. But for the first time ever, we're seeing serious contenders in the private sector. We are seeing independent commercial space flight. And that's why it's going to work this time. Cooperation. We have the private sector providing services and working with NASA, taking fuel and supplies to the International Space Station, for example. But that's just the beginning. We will see space tourism. We'll see space settlements, perhaps low orbit space hotels before too long. Space solar power is a very important idea that we will see more of in the future. Actually collecting solar power in space and beaming it back to Earth. Asteroid mining enables us to harvest materials. So I would say to this student, it's taken us a while, but now we're going back to stay. This is not going to be a, the equivalent of a weekend trip to the moon. We will go and we will establish bases. So I've spoken a lot about American spaceflight initiatives. You can't talk about contemporary spaceflight seriously without talking about the European Space Agency. 22 member countries with an additional nine countries that are involved in various capacities working together 
for exploration and development of space. And think about this. We've got the United Kingdom, France, and Germany, all members of the European Space Agency, which is with its operation center in Darmstadt in Germany, where I had the pleasure of speaking a couple of years ago, working together on a common project for the common good of humanity. Isn't that alone a good enough uh, reason to continue with spaceflight exploration? This is an important innovative force in technology and exploration. When talking about all of these possibilities, there is something that sort of burbled up to the top of the national conversation recently based on some words from President Trump, and that had to do with the idea of a space force. Now, there's no actual policy that's attached to this idea so far, but when you heard the idea, what was your reaction or perhaps that of uh, the NSS to the idea of trying to have some sort of organized space force above and beyond the mission of NASA? Gosh, this is a tricky and fascinating topic, and I would say everyone in contemporary and commercial spaceflight has an opinion on this. The first point I'd like to make is there are two different concepts. There's space force and space guard, and President Trump and his administration has put forward the idea of a space force, which would actually be a branch of the United States military, similar to the Air Force or the Navy, to conduct military-like operations in space. In other words, to serve as a deterrent or a military presence. And then there's the idea of a space guard, which would be more of a regulatory board. I found a couple of things that I think really distill this idea well. To quote The Guardian, the idea is to create by 2020 a new branch of the military, an independent grant branch like that cannot be created unless Congress approves it. But the idea would be dedicated to fighting wars in space. So we don't want wars in space. That's, that's a really bad idea. But the fact that we don't want it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And to be realistic, other countries have certainly looked at the military potential and applications of space. So the NSS proposes a transparently operating civil United States Space Guard with national and collaborative scope of operations. And such a guard would initially be established and funded with the capacity and responsibility to license and regulate civil and commercial space activities. Something we really need to think about. In the past, there were very few people who went into space and they were overseen by governmental bodies. Well, that's not really the case now. We have so many independent spaceflight groups. Blue Origin, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, all launched missions very recently. And there will be many more in the future and there will be many other contenders. So one of the one of the topics for discussion in my field is, well, well who regulates that? Who determines if a spacecraft is safe enough to take tourists into space? The idea of a space guard, I think, is is not only a good one, but is necessary. We're going into a very exciting new realm, uh, literally and metaphorically. So, yes, we're going to be going further and faster than we ever have before, to quote Tom Wolfe and the right stuff. But we're also exploring areas of human existence that we haven't looked at before. Jeff Notkin is a Tucson-based author, film and TV producer, musician, and meteorite expert. The National Space Society can be found online at space.nss.org.
Pop music has been used as a vehicle for political protest since the 1960s in the United States. In Mexico, many musicians are using their songs and fame now to critique social issues, including border tension and the struggles of migrants. Rodrigo Cervantes filed this story from KJZZ's Mexico City Bureau about Mexican artists who are singing out. Bob Dylan, Public Enemy, Rage Against the Machine, all of them are examples of musicians that brought us songs of uprising, anthems of an era. And Mexico has its own slice of history, especially since the 90s, when the state relaxed its policies to restrain rock. Uh, my name is Randy Ebright. I do not much. Randy's being modest. He's a songwriter, drummer, vocalist, and guitar player from the Mexican band Molotov which formed in the 90s, shortly after he moved from the U.S. to Mexico. When I was 15 years old, my family got transferred down here. My father was a DEA agent. Molotov's popularity comes from its mix of hip-hop with rock, but also from its irreverent, sometimes anti-establishment lyrics in Spanglish. Immigration became a topic after Randy's baby daughter, born in Mexico, was inspected by customs agents in a U.S. airport. Checking her diaper to see if she had any, like... Contraband and the experience was an eye-opener for Randy and the mistreatment towards immigrants. And he came up with the song Frijolero. Now I wish I had a dime for every single time I've gotten stared down for being in the wrong side of town. In the rich man I'd be if I had that kind of chips. Lately I wanna smack the mouths of these racists. Randy says the song contrasts the way he felt welcomed in Mexico, unlike the welcome many immigrants get in the US. He reflected on the issue again with the song Dreamers, about undocumented Mexican youth living in the U.S. He played it at MTV Unplugged. I'm also a dreamer, you know. I ended up living the Mexican dream. The Mexican government currently deports thousands of Central Americans as a result from a tariff threat from Washington. Randy says Mexico and the U.S. are now playing the same game. I think it's pretty sad. It's kind of hypocritical. And another group that's been close to immigration issues is the eclectic band Café Tacuba. One of our priorities for sure is to try to reflect what is around us and talk about it. That's Emanuel del Real, or Meme, a multi-instrumentalist from Café Tacuba. Along with singer Ruben Albarran, he visited the migrant caravan shelter in Mexico City last year. For me, it was a lesson. To see Meme says he was surprised to see the positive attitude from migrants despite their situation. They decided to play some tunes to the travelers, including Olita del Alta Mar. Here's a fragment from their NPR's Tiny Desk appearance. El fin de la infancia, the end of childhood, is another song Meme considers a portrait of the migrant struggle. And the song says we don't have to see what's going on in New York to be ourselves. Meme says immigrants are not fully recognized as part of the American social fabric, but humanity is a blend of cultures and migrations will never stop. Joaquin Rosendo is a musician and producer. He performs in the underground Mexican scene as a masked character called Vetiver Bong. It's a wrestler that plays cumbia in the night. <laughs> Vetiver Bong's song, Mexican Robots, is a note to migrant workers in the U.S. We are the Mexican robots to clean your house, to work in the restaurants, I don't know. And they, they are fighting for the American dream. Rosendo did arrangements for the latest album of Mexican-American singer Lila Downs. The idea of the new record of Lila is to talk about Oaxaca and borders. Downs sings a cover to Manu Chao's Clandestino, 
which lyrics refer to the hard times undocumented migrants face. And just like Randy and Meme, Rosendo hopes that new generations keep raising their voices on issues that affect them. I'm Rodrigo Cervantes in Mexico City. You can learn more about the protest rock scene in Mexico and listen to complete versions of the songs featured in this story at fronterasdesk.org. the biography of the actor Charles Lawton, the introduction describes the pleasure that Lawton and his partner Elsa Lanchester had after moving from England to California in the 1930s. They both loved gardening and were amazed by the variety of exotic desert plants that grew around their home in Pacific Palisades. One of their favorites was a night-blooming cereus, which is also known as the Queen of the Night because its flowers bloom for only one night each year. Charles and Elsa would throw cocktail parties to watch the process unfold in the moonlight between 9 p.m. and 2 a.m. The book says, These occasions caused all possible kinds of people to meet and mix well. Here in Tucson, Tohono Chul is home to more than 400 night-blooming cereus, a variety that's native to the Sonoran Desert. We'll visit a gathering to watch the flowers bloom next in this story by Andrew Brown. Michelle Armstrong, you do marketing and communications at Tohono Chul Park. When is night bloom going to happen this year? We never know, and that's kind of the magic of it, but we get people calling all summer long asking, when is it, when is it? And we can't give it an exact date. This morning I went out and looked at them, and you, when you first look at them in the morning, you can start seeing the color of the petal. The sepals are starting to pull back. I'm Lee Mason. I'm the Director of General Services at Tohono Chul Park. If you know what you're looking at and you're very careful, you can go up to that flower and you can touch it lightly. It's just a real soft and pushes and it goes and it comes open a little bit. I checked them like four times this morning and then the last time I checked them I could tell, yes, they are actually going. I'm Laura Hackenbrock. I'm here at Tohono Chol trying to take some wonderful winning photographs of the uh, Queen of the Night. I have a 5D and a um, flash and a tripod, and um, I'm a serious amateur, so I um, use my photos for my own interest, and I'm also in a local photography club, so I use them for competition. What is it about this flower that is uh, so intriguing to you? I, I think just the fact that it only blooms once a year, and you have to be Johnny on the spot. You have to be ready to go when it's ready, and luckily I was in town, and, and so I think that's very appealing. It's gorgeous. It's white, but then it has a little bit of yellow, a little bit of pink. It's just, um, it's beautiful. Can I have you just introduce yourself? Yeah. So, um, Lily, come on here. You can't also mitsprechen. Come on here. Yeah, come here. So, um, we are um, from Germany, Berlin, Germany, and um, I'm a mother of three. And here I have my daughter. Her name is Lenny. Lenny, yeah. Can you tell me what you just saw? Was hast du gerade gesehen? 
A spider. A spider eaten by a wasp or poisoned by a wasp, right? Yes. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Uh, can I have you introduce yourself? Oh, hi. I'm Vicki Edelman. I'm a, um, a new docent here. What we saw was a female tarantula hawk who has um, found a tarantula. So she's going to drag this into her hole or a hole that she has found. She will lay one egg on it. She'll keep him alive in the hole and, until the baby hatches. It eats live food. So the last part of it it will eat is the heart because the heart is what's pumping blood through the tarantula heart. So it eats the organs one by one. Our cousin just told us that this happens, but you see it really, really rarely. You never all, you see it very, very um, randomly, and then we saw it. So it was a big wow for all of us. <laughs> Have you got to see the flower yet? Yeah, we saw it. Hast du die Blume auch schon gesehen? Yes. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay, but it's not a wild animal. <laughs> I was raised in Pacific Northwest. And I love pine trees. But when you come here to the desert, there are things about this area that are just, you'll never see any place else, no matter where you go. There's, there's nothing else quite like it. The queen of the night has finally decided that she wants to play. And she's letting her flowers show tonight. What we have here is a Pinocerius gregii, variety transmontanus. They are not self-compatible, meaning that that plant can have a hundred flowers on it and they cannot cross-pollinate, they cannot make fruit. It has to have a whole different seed-grown plant in order to make fruit. So the survival strategy is we mass bloom, we get all of these flowers out there, now the moth can go from plant to plant to plant and cross-pollinate all these plants, make fruits. I think that the plant produces some type of pheromone that triggers the rest of them to go. To me, this is the most incredible plant in the world. And to me, they're all alive. And the queen is the queen. And she talks to me, and, we, and I talk to her. And we, there's a communication there. My name is uh, Debbie Penn. Well, it, it looks like um, a leafless, kind of metal... Um, spike. It looks like something that would be used at a construction site. And then it just has these gorgeous flowers that are that's coming off of it. Beautiful white flower with a, um, it's almost fully opened but not quite, very delicate petals and uh, just a, a little touch of yellow right in the very center. It's one of the great beauties of the desert that's for sure. It's a sense of tranquility. Um, it's very calming when I look at it. Those were some of the people gathered one hot summer night at Tohono Chul who talked with Andrew Brown. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.